Some people have names with really cool meanings behind them. I don't. My name, Sawyer, doesn't have any cool meaning. It's not Latin for king of dumplings or champion of dodgeball. Sawyer is actually a job title. It comes from this Middle English term for a sawer, someone who sawed things. Uh, a sawyer was someone, a woodsman, who made his living cutting down trees. That's what my name means, cutter of wood. And later on, the sawyer was actually someone in a sawmill who was the, the head, the boss, the head of all the woodcutters was the chief sawyer. That's me, cutter of wood. My last name, Bullock, means young bull. I'm a young bull with a saw. Fear me. It's actually an Anglo-Saxon last name. It's spread throughout Scotland and Ireland and Wales. This is my family tartan. And last names and first names, your name can tell you a lot about who you are and where you've come from. Maybe you've got special names for people in your life. Maybe you had some nicknames growing up. Uh, my name's Sawyer was shortened by my friends, so they would call me Soy or Soy Sauce or just Sauce. You can call me that, but Pastor Sauce, let's be respectful during all this. What nicknames do you have? What nicknames do you have for your spouse, for your family members? What did your siblings call you growing up? Maybe you've been called some really harsh names growing up. Have you ever tried to change your name? It's actually hard. We're trying to change my wife's last name right now, and it takes a lot of effort, but we're changing her last name to signify a change that's occurred in real life. We have become one family, and we're trying to signify this with our names. The prophets in the Bible, they knew all about the power of names, and they gave people very particular names, names that reflected what God thought of them. And these weren't just insults or compliments, but these names were designed to make people and whole nations, in this case today Israel, stop in their tracks and think about what God actually thought about them. Today we're looking at one of the greatest name changes, perhaps in all of scripture, maybe in the history of the world, I would contend that. We're looking at the greatest history, uh, what am I saying? The greatest name change in the history of the world. It's such a great name change that it still affects us here today in Toronto in 2022. So let's check it out together. Would you turn in your Bibles or swipe on your phones to Romans chapter 9? We'll be starting in verse 25. Paul is picking up in the book of Romans the story of Israel. It's this long, winding story that no one quite knew where it was going to end up. The story of Israel. It's this long, windy road of deliverance and disobedience and then responding in faith and then disobedience and unfaithfulness and judgment. It seems like God's people can't do the right thing for longer than 10 minutes. Thank goodness we're not like that anymore. And Paul is saying in the book of Romans, and especially in, in these later chapters, that where Israel's story of, is going, its ultimate destination, the fulfillment of their purposes, was Jesus himself, Israel's Messiah and the Lord of the world. And the beginnings of the Gospels, you can see this in John and Mark and Luke, it says that Jesus wasn't accepted by his own people. There were those, though, outside of the nation of Israel, outside of God's people at the time, who did accept Jesus as the Messiah. So there's this ironic reversal where God's people, most of them, didn't accept Jesus, and those who were not God's people did accept Jesus as the Messiah. He was accepted by those that the Jews at the time would consider to be 
their enemies. And there's this question of if somehow God's promises and his plans for Israel had failed. Did God not keep his word, his, promise, his, his promises of covenant blessing of the world to the world through Israel itself? And Paul says early in the chapter, chapter 9, verses 6, that not all who are in Israel are actually in God's family. Paul used the example, you remember, of Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau to show that even within family groups, God chooses to use certain people for his covenant purposes and others he passes over and chooses not to use at different times. After showing this with the patriarchs, Paul showed this with also the story of Exodus. We looked at last week, the story of Moses and Pharaoh, that God will use whoever he wants for his purposes. And if people respond in hardness of heart, he will use them for his purposes. And if people respond in faith to his mercy, God will also use them. And to show this, Paul invoked the metaphor of the potter and the clay. And we looked at a passage in Jeremiah. There's also an example of this metaphor being used in Israel to say that the potter can use the clay however he wants. So if, if the clay, if a people group who was destined to be used as vessels of wrath, people that were ripe for God's judgment and wrath, if this people group responds in faith to God, he can use them now as vessels of his mercy. And if there were people groups that were meant to be objects of God's mercy that responded in disobedience and in unfaithfulness, God can choose to use them also as vessels of his wrath. He can use peoples and clay however he so chooses. However we choose to respond to God, he can use us for his purposes. It's actually his right as the creator to use us as he wills. This is a humbling invitation to God's mercy but it's also a harsh warning to the people of Israel that God will judge their unfaithfulness. And God is free to show mercy to whoever he wants, even those outside of the people of Israel at the time. This is the argument Paul has been making. So what God is doing now is not actually something strange or something new or some derivation from the plan, but Paul is showing that this has been part of God's working with humanity and God's working with Israel from the very, very start. He showed this with the patriarchs. He showed this in the story of Exodus. And Paul is going to be showing also how there's precedence for this in the prophets. We're going to be looking at Hosea and Isaiah today. That's fun. So let's begin reading together. Verses 25 to 26. As indeed, he says in Hosea. So Paul is saying, look, God said this here, God says this here, and look, God says this here in Hosea. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So here Hosea is relaying a prophecy originally about God and Israel, but Paul is applying this to God and the Gentiles, God and those who are outside of Israel, outside of God's family at the time. Vessels of God's judgment, recipients of God's condemnation, those who are being refashioned into objects of God's mercy, not only Jews, but Gentiles, okay? A little bit of backstory on this. About 750 years, before Jesus would come and solve the sin problem, God worked through this young man named Hosea. He was a prophet living in the northern territory of Israel. And in many times, God calls prophets to serve in some very strange ways. The prophet Isaiah was called to preach naked. 
perhaps second to Isaiah, Hosea has one of the very strangest callings by God. Not only a message to say, but prophets also acted out. They kind of embodied and dramatized this message that they were speaking for God. The term prophet means to be for speaking. It wasn't always speaking about the future. Sometimes it was also speaking God's truth into the present. Sometimes it was both as well. Okay, now God says to Hosea, this young prophet, this young man, I want you to marry a prostitute. There's not much explanation that's given past that point. So he does it. Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. And for a few few years, as far as we know, things go well. They have a son, and then they have a daughter, and then they have another son. And one day, Gomer is just gone. We can imagine Hosea waking up in bed, and she's not there. He looks around the house, and she's not there. And then she just doesn't come home. Hosea doesn't have a wife anymore. Their children don't have a mother anymore. How would you feel if your spouse, if your parents just abandoned you? No explanation. They were just gone. What that betrayal would feel like, that abandonment. Time passes, and God comes to Hosea and says, go find her. Okay. And marry her again. Again? Yes. Go find her, Hosea. He says, okay. And so this is Hosea chapter 3, verses 1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. He says, go, Hosea. Go find your wife again, who even now is being loved by another. But second half of this verse, there's a prophetic turn. Look at this. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. This just means that Israel has turned to other idols. And when it says cakes of raisins, it just means that they like the stuff of the culture that they're in. They've turned away from God. They've turned to worship other things. They've been enticed by the things of their culture. Things like comfort and pleasure, consumption, power, the love of money, doing what we want, not loving what we ought to, loving what's bad for us, not loving what's good for us, not loving who we have entered into a covenant with. And as as you go, looking again for your spouse who was a prostitute and who has entered back into prostitution. Where do you go looking for her? What areas do you go to? How messy is that search? How painful is that pursuit? Neighborhoods that people say, you don't go here. Prophets, men of God, don't go here. And here's Hosea looking for who? His wife of all people. So imagine, this is just kind of some literary license, some creative interpretation. Hosea going to these parts of town, these streets and saying, "Hey, have you hi, have you have you seen my wife, Gomer? I thought I thought she was with you. I thought she left this this behind years ago." Yeah, sorry, I'm just I'm just looking for her. Have you seen her? No, no, I'm sorry I haven't. Okay, I'll ask someone else. Hey, 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 have you have you seen Gomer? Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't know you guys were still together. I'm, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I saw her today. Uh, she's, she's just down 
over there. I'm sorry, man. I didn't know you guys were still together about that. It's okay. It's okay. Imagine Hosea finding her. Maybe he sees her on a sales block being sold to the highest bidder. Maybe she's bound up in a brothel. But Hosea comes and finds his wife, the mother of their three children, and is told, this is her price. But she's your wife, Hosea. She's your wife. She's, She's already yours. Why are you paying for something that's already yours for a person that's already part of your family. You've already been bound together. How, how strange, how frustrating is this? She's already yours. What was this scene like? And here's the crazy thing. He pays. Hosea 3, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley for what was already his. The Bible says, and I I hope you understand, that God is Hosea, and we, no offense, we are Gomer. We are already God. Psalm Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Humanity is the possession of the Creator. Turning to love things that use us and hurt us and abuse us when the rightful object of our affection has been waiting for us all along. And 2,000 years ago, God sends his son Jesus to pay the price and spill his blood and buy us back, we who are already his. Think of Gomer's shame. Having returned to things that didn't love her but used her, she abandoned her role, her covenant as mother and also as wife. Not covenant as mother, covenant as wife. Yet Hosea, which means salvation, if you want to talk about names, redeems her. One of the metaphors that Paul used early in the book of Romans to talk about God's interactions with us is this language, this illustration of someone being redeemed from a slave market. The other men sought to buy her to use her. Hosea sought to buy her to heal her. Now let's keep reading in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. And I said to her, this is Hosea speaking now, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And now there's a bit of a prophetic pivot again. Now Hosea isn't just talking to Gomer, but he's speaking to all of Israel about the future God has for them. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now David hadn't been around for a couple hundred years. Hosea, at the time of Hosea, this interaction was many hundreds of years after. So when he's saying David, he's actually invoking a messianic metaphor. They said that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So he's talking about the Messiah. Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and the Messiah, their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There is terror in being unable to keep the law of a holy God with this judgment hanging around if you're not able to keep the precepts. But there will come a day, Hosea is saying, when the Messiah will come and the fear of the Lord will be of his goodness. God's people will come to him and fear, not out of terror, 
but in awe of his goodness and his graciousness and his mercy to them. This is the gospel, that God works in her and completes the work in spite of her sins, both Gomer and his church, in spite of what we've done, her doings, in spite of running away. And then Hosea stands and says, there will come a day when God's people will come to him and fear his goodness. These are the days that we've lived in, that we are living in today. Salvation has come. Our Hosea is here. And he found you and he found me. And he had to walk in the most despicable places to find us. When Jesus came and found you and found me, we weren't so nice and neat and put together. But we were naked and in chains. And you were sinful and so was I. And our gracious God said, how much? There's this common mistake that God in the Old Testament is somehow judgmental and angry. And in the New Testament, he's gracious and happy and and nice. But can you see how ridiculous that is when you look at the story of Hosea and Gomer? Some scholars have said that second to God's work in Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection, second to this, the story of Hosea and Gomer is the most powerful demonstration of God's love in all the Bible. But to bring this back to Romans 9, Paul is pointing to this story and says that God has always been in the business of bringing people to him who are outside of his family. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. This is what Paul has been doing the entire book of Romans. God does this for us. He redeems us. He calls us righteous. He says that we are in right standing with him. We're part of his people, adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ, recipients of his promise, recipients of his spirit, living temples, commissioned to his purposes, made new to renew. Hosea's prophecy is fulfilled in the calling of the Gentiles. Paul's showing that those who were passed over for the messianic purposes, like Esau in Romans 16, pardon me, 13, are now in God's beloved people. We could stop right there. I could go home right now. That's a great message. But Paul doesn't stop, so neither shall we. Let's continue on once again, and we're going to see Paul flip this principle on its head. He's going to show the opposite side of this implication. So let's keep reading verses 27 to 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So while Paul uses Hosea to show that God's mercy is wide enough to include the Gentiles. Now he's using Isaiah to show that God's justice and judgment is focused enough to exclude some of the members of Israel. One of God's promises to Abraham was that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seas. But now, using Isaiah, this is chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, Paul is arguing that Isaiah had predicted not all of the Israelites would be found in God's people. 
This is just like what Paul said in verse 6. Not all who are in Israel are of Israel. It's this distinction between being in the nation of Israel versus being in God's family. And then verse 29 reaffirms this point with another prediction from Isaiah. So what's in 29 is actually from chapter 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant, if he had not left any of us around, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out in God's judgment because of what they had done. But... God still kept his promises to Israel. They were not utterly destroyed by judgment, by the consequences of what they had been doing, but nearly. And they're only sustained because God is merciful and faithful to the promises that he had made to them. Okay, now this will bring us back to the original question, the original focus of chapter 9. How can we know that God will keep his word to us if it appears that he's broken his word to Israel? And we've already stated the misconception that Paul was addressing early on. This misconception that being ethnically in Israel meant being in God's people. And then Paul Paul says in 9.6, not all who are descended from Israel are in Israel. Here Paul explains how the number was shrunk so drastically, why only a remnant of Israel are already here. And this is the how. Paul explains how this takes place. The why, that's what we're going to look at next week, verses 30 to 33. But the original promise to Abraham was that his offspring would be like sea, sea, sand on the seashore. That's Genesis 22, 17. Yet because of God's sentence on Israel, because of her sin, only the remnant will be saved. In fact, this is actually God's mercy once again being present in his judgment. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us offspring, we would have been completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because God had mercy on the remnant whom the Messiah would come through and be a blessing to the rest of the world. Israel did not perish. Sounds very harsh, but even in the judgment, there is God's mercy. So this remnant is still a symbol of God's mercy and faithfulness. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Even if they are like sand on the seashore, only a, a remnant will remain. If you want the promises of God, you will have to see them coming to fruition on the other side of judgment. The remnant that remains are simply witnesses to the fact that God's purposes will continue, despite the fact that none of the people who are carrying those promises are worthy to do so. Therefore, it's not as if God's word has failed. He has been faithful in his promises to Israel. In fact, even going above and beyond the bare minimum, but even in his faithfulness, he has been merciful. He's shown mercy where only judgment was deserved. But because he has been faithful, the believers in Rome, whom Paul is writing to, can trust that God will also be faithful to them. And the same holds true for us today. So chapter chapter 9, verses 6 to 29. It's been a pretty devastating passage to Paul's Jewish audience. It has. Paul is drawing this not out of his imagination. He's not just looking to say mean things to his kinsmen or unpleasant things. But this is the scriptural story, the biblical story, the, the story of a people with a great vocation, a great calling who got it wrong and who turned their backs to God. And Paul is putting this like this because he is going to go on and say all of the things that God can and still will do. But he's determined to point out 
that people can't get the impression that somehow there's this backdoor side entrance into the family of God simply because of one's ethnic status. Okay, so let's pause here. What do we do with all this? We've just been walking through one of the most theologically difficult and even controversial passages in all of the Bible. We'll finish it next week, but the heavy lifting is done today. You can rest easy. So first of all, thanks for sticking with me. Today, we saw Paul once again show two sides of mercy and judgment. He did this with the patriarchs in Genesis. He did this with Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus. And today, he's done it with the prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. We saw in this story of Hosea and Gomer that we have been purchased back from our enslavement, from our oppression, from our abuse. And God has redeemed us to be with him in covenant relation. We see that God will adorn his bride. That is us. That is his church. So you have a new name. We who were not God's people are now called my people. We who were not beloved are now called by God, my beloved. And you have a new calling. You have a new name. You have a new calling. And who you are and what you do are linked. So not only are we recipients of God's mercy, now we are conduits of God's mercy. We are called to be part of what God is doing here on earth, bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. That's actually how we pray. And this follows directly from our new name, from the new name that we receive in the book of Hosea, from the mercy we receive by what was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees are asking people, they're asking his disciples, why is Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with the scum of society, with the outcasts, with the dogs. And Jesus quotes Hosea to them. This is what he says. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Matthew 9, 13. I've come to seek and to save the lost. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Not those who think themselves to be righteous, but those who know that they are lost and that they are desperate. We are here today because of God's mercy and his faithfulness. Jesus took the wrath so we can receive the promises. And those who carry his promises today are only here because of God's faithfulness and mercy. Jesus has fulfilled God's promises and his purposes The purposes for Israel are now fulfilled through the Messiah. God's purposes for Israel. It was never this side private game between Israel and God. But what God was doing for Israel, he wanted to do through Israel and for the world. If God had fulfilled those purposes in Jesus, then this is worldwide good news. And this marks us today, even at Bayview Glen. This marks us as a church, as a body of believers, marked by the mercy and faithfulness of God. We at Bayview Glen today, it guides every decision as we work together so that everyone, everywhere can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus.